0: I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing,
1: Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terence Evil podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. Um, For today's episode, I should probably be calling this Where We Are with Taryn Siegel and Charlotte Scar, because I have a guest in the studio with me today. Hello, Charlotte. Thanks for coming on the pod. Hey, Taryn. It is such a pleasure (laughs) to be invited on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you. So uh, let me explain. This week, there has been so much happening across the world, so many fascinating stories that I genuinely couldn't find a way to narrow it down to just five stories like I usually do. So, with the help of Charlotte Scar, we're going to be bringing you eight stories today, all of them important enough to justify their own deep dive. Charlotte Scar is the host of the podcast, A Broad View which takes a news story that's being covered in the UK about an international issue. She gets an international guest on her podcast every week who is from the country that's being profiled in the news, and they talk about how it's been received in the UK media. And it's really great, so I recommend you guys check that out.
0: Thank you very much for that plug, Taryn. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, At this point, I usually say, here's what happened in the world this week. Do you want to say that part? And here's what happened in the world this week. Very nice.
0: So Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met on Thursday in Moscow in a desperate attempt to de-escalate tensions between the two countries who are currently battling one another in the Syrian province of Idlib. The two leaders have a taut relationship, to say the least. They call one another a dear friend, but land on completely opposite sides in their support for the Syrian civil war. President Putin backs the Syrian government led by Bashar al-Assad, whereas President Erdogan supports the rebels who have been fighting for nine years to overthrow Assad's regime. Although these days the goal is looking more or less impossible. The head-to-head Russia versus Turkey side of the Syrian conflict was triggered in November 2015 when Turkey downed a Russian warplane. Russia responded with economic sanctions against Turkey that were so strangling that Turkey was forced to back down and apologise. The province of Idlib is the last rebel-held stronghold in Syria. And until a couple of months ago, it was a ceasefire zone. But the Syrian army backed by Russia started a devastating offensive to retake the region at the beginning of the year, prompting thousands of Turkish soldiers to come to the rebel's defence and forcing nearly a million Syrian civilians towards the Turkish border in probably the worst humanitarian crisis of the nine-year war. This was actually covered on the podcast in the last two weeks, so if you want to learn more about this complicated and, and messy story, I would definitely recommend you checking out the last two podcasts.
1: In response to the crisis in Idlib, President Erdogan announced last week that he would be throwing the doors to Greece open. Turkish border authorities have stopped blocking migrants from entering Greece either by land or sea, prompting tens of thousands of migrants to try and enter the country. Erdogan said this move was because Turkey was faced with the prospect of a million Syrian refugees from Idlib trying to enter their country, but actually it seems like the border attempts in the past week have been mostly not Syrian. Greek officials say that most of the border crossers arrested on Monday were Pakistani, Afghan, and Moroccan. So it seems like hopeful migrants from other countries seized on Erdogan's announcement to try their luck for passage into Greece and the rest of the European Union beyond. By the end of the week, border authorities in Greece were using tear gas, stun grenades, and water cannons to keep thousands of migrants from crossing on land, though preventing water crossings is a lot harder. Tensions reached a breaking point on Wednesday with the death of a migrant. They shot him. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Which Turkey blames Greece for, but which Greece adamantly denies. So there are some fears that this could be a repeat of 2015, when a million refugees entered the EU, mostly by crossing from Turkey into Greece. But so far, it seems like border authorities in Greece and Bulgaria are better prepared to respond to the crisis than they were back then, deploying military forces to stop the large-scale crossings by land, at least. The Greek islands, which are the destination of most crossings by water, are already well past capacity, with 20,000 refugees being hosted on the island of Lesbos alone. That's absolutely crazy statistics. The 20,000? Yeah. What's especially incredible is that the island population itself
0: is maybe like three times that number. I know. It's like, I just don't even know how, like in the UK we have like, I don't know even how many refugees we have, but we didn't even reach the quota that the UN suggested. It's actually, anyway... All of those
1: incredible people that have worked for so long on our endless war in Afghanistan, 19 years, going on 20 years, and there hasn't been a moment like this. We've had uh, very successful negotiations. We think they'll be successful in the end. The other side's tired of war, everybody's tired of war, that's been a particularly long and gruesome one.
0: So the U.S. signed a peace deal with the Taliban on Saturday that sets the stage for bringing to an end America's longest war. The war in Afghanistan has been going on since September 11th terrorist attacks of 2001, with the continued American presence in the region being criticised by political leaders from both sides of the spectrum. But the deal signed on Saturday includes many of the same terms that were originally offered by the Taliban to former president George Bush before the offensive in Afghanistan even began. President Bush rejected the deal at the time. The agreement this time around is beset with its own implementation difficulties, so it's not seen as a final peace deal, but just a substantial step forward. Its success hinges on agreements between the Taliban and the Afghan government, although the Afghan government was conspicuously absent from the negotiating table on Saturday. Basically, it sets out a timeline for the US to withdraw its forces from Afghanistan in exchange for counter-terrorism commitments by the Taliban, such as severing ties with al-Qaeda. But the most controversial part of the deal pledges the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters from prison by March 10th, something they have signalled they are totally unwilling to do. Some critics of the deal have also been troubled by President Trump's portrayal of the Taliban in the last week. Speaking at a news conference, the President seems to suggest that the Taliban, which is responsible for killing thousands of Americans, among a long list of other atrocities, could be something like an ally of the U.S. in the region.
1: We've killed ISIS fighters by the thousands and likewise in Afghanistan, but now it's time for somebody else to do that work and that'll be the Taliban and it could be surrounding countries. There are many countries that
0: surround Afghanistan. Since the deal signing, violence has erupted between the Taliban and Afghan security forces triggering an airstrike by the U.S. in response. The outcome of this quote-unquote peace deal has been mixed so far, to say the least.
1: And just as these forces are trying to forge some kind of peace deal, they might be in hot water with the International Criminal Court. The ICC approved on Thursday an investigation into the Taliban, Afghan forces, and the U.S. military and CIA personnel for war crimes and crimes against humanity. This is the first time that the international court has targeted U.S. forces. The U.S. has long condemned the ICC and refuses to cooperate with it. In 2018, the then-National Security Advisor John Bolton Said the court, "Unacceptably threatens American sovereignty." He went on to say that the U.S. will not cooperate with the ICC, and that the group is already dead to us.
0: Seems a little extreme. (laughs) A little
1: extreme. (laughs) Prosecutors in the case alleged that U.S. military troops and intelligence agents committed acts of torture, cruel treatment, and even rape and sexual violence against conflict-related detainees in Afghanistan and other areas between 2003 and 2004. So indignation at the investigation and the ruling on Thursday is probably the only thing the US, Taliban, and the Afghan security forces can all agree on right now. But the move was welcomed by human rights groups like Human Rights Watch and the Center for Constitutional Rights, which represents some prisoners being held in detention at Guantanamo Bay. The human rights groups have said that this decision shows that no one is above the law. But since the U.S. refuses to cooperate with the ICC, it's unclear if anyone indicted by the prosecutors would actually appear in court, let alone face convictions. In today's world, uh, inequality, it's not only about income inequality, it has to do a lot with knowledge and access. So that's why we put so many effort on it, uh, making connectivity available, and we have increased it dramatically in the past years, or in Costa Rica, for example, you have uh, two intelligent telephones per capita, or telephones per capita, mobiles. Uh, So access has uh, incremented, and that is reflected in our our performance in,
0: in the area. Now, on to Costa Rica, which is apparently the happiest country in the world. The happiest country? Yeah, that is Costa what I Costa Rica, not a Scandinavian country. No, I don't know. The, I don't know which organization released these statistics, but yeah. apparently the people are the happiest in Costa Rica. Wow. Maybe it's the sun. Anyway, so Costa Rica's president is in the middle of a crisis following a data collection scandal, so not so happy. Basically, the executive branch of the government set up a data collection unit they've been using for the past year and a half to collect and analyse private personal data taken from a bunch of different government entities. But the presidential office had no legal basis for setting up this data unit. In an attempt to make it legal, the government published a decree on February 19th that announced the creation and legality of the unit. Oh, all at once. I know. Seems a little bit too simple and easy. Yeah. <laughs> there was an immediate public outcry. Last week, the Attorney General's office raided the presidential offices and the homes of four officials. This was the first time in Costa Rica that AG officers raided the offices of the president. President Carlos Alvarado's closest ally, presidential minister Victor Morales Mora, was forced to resign, along with three other top officials. In response, Alvarado admitted they may have committed an error here in the creation of the data collection unit, but called it political clumsiness. Wow. Hmm.
1: Israelis headed to the polls this week for the third time in a year. Ridiculous. Just keeps going on, doesn't it? It just keeps going on. And once again, neither leading candidate was able to win a majority for the third time. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu won the most votes to claim 36 seats in parliament with his opponent Benny Gantz of the rival Blue and White party claiming 33 seats, very close. With all of Netanyahu's allies combined, the PM gains control of 58 seats. But that's still three shy of the 61 needed to form a majority and therefore a government in Israel's parliament. So close, but so, yet, close, so far. <laughs> yet so far. Again. <laughs> Netanyahu was hoping for a decisive victory that would place him in a good position going into his corruption trial that's scheduled for later this month. So he claimed victory on election night anyway before all the results were reported and later lashed out at the joint list party that finished in third with the command of 15 seats. The 15-seat sweep was a huge coup for the Arab party and a major rebuke to Netanyahu, who's built much of his appeal on tough anti-Palestinian rhetoric. For the third time, the candidates will scramble to form a coalition majority after failing twice before in the past year. If no one is able to rally enough support to reach majority, Israel may face an unbelievable and unprecedented fourth straight election.
0: I'm not sure I can handle another one. No,
1: I'm sure they probably can't. Although, apparently, there isn't as much election fatigue as you would expect. They're still getting really high turnouts in their election, including this last
0: one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But I guess if it's so close, maybe they're thinking that their votes are important. I guess, like yeah. in, opposed to in the UK, when it's marginally predictable, mm. they're probably thinking, well, if I don't go and vote they're going to win. like yeah, it is, is, vote that, is more decisive. Yeah, it's a lot more decisive. Yeah. But honestly, it's been spiralling on for so long. Yeah. Good afternoon. I'm pleased to tell you that the Commission has just adopted our proposal for the first ever European climate law. This proposal sets in stone our objective to be climate neutral in 2050. And... 2050 is no longer impossible distant, as I have a glimpse of the possible environment they will likely experience. Well, this glimpse is pretty sobering if we don't act now. The European Commission announced its first-ever climate law on Wednesday that's supposed to set the legal framework for all member states in the bloc to reach their goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen described the law as a compass for the next three decades. Part of the proposal involves ramping up the EU's greenhouse gas reduction goals every 10 years. But so far, they haven't adjusted their reduction goal for 2030, which is right now set at a 40% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels, which climate scientists say is nowhere near enough to stave off serious consequences. The Commission was hoping to court the favour of climate activist Greta Thunberg and met with her in Brussels on Wednesday for that purpose. But Thunberg dismissed the new law, repeating what many climate activists have argued, which is that nations need to focus on carbon emissions right now, not lay out long-term goals. She even went as far as to say that Wednesday's proposal was like giving up the Paris Climate Agreement. When the EU presents this climate law and net zero by 2050, you indirectly admit surrender, that you are giving up. Giving up on the Paris Agreement. Giving up on your promises giving up on doing everything you possibly can to ensure a safe future for your own children. You yourself declared that we are in a climate and environment emergency. You said this was an existential threat. Now you must prove that you mean it. This climate law is surrender. Climate scientists and activists like her are mainly concerned that countries aren't doing enough right now to rein in CO2 emissions to a point where we can prevent the world from warming more than two degrees Celsius. Scientists are saying that countries around the world are going to miss that target by a wide margin unless drastic steps are taken this year. Tonight I tell you with absolute confidence we are going to win the Democratic nomination. Just a few days ago, the press and the pundits had declared the campaign dead. And then came South Carolina, and they had something to say about it. And we're told, well, when you got to Super Tuesday, it'd be over. Well, it may be over for the other guy.
1: All right, and then last up is the election that happened this past Tuesday. Uh, also known as Super Tuesday. Mm.
0: I have actually been following quite closely the U.S. election. And embarrassingly, I still haven't got a a vast knowledge on the subject. It seems like there is too much to know, too many candidates. So, Taryn, what happened on Tuesday? Okay, so Tuesday, really the couple
1: weeks leading up to that, but Tuesday was sort of the final say in the future of a lot of the Democratic candidates. So let's uh, do a little bit of a refresher to start with. Um, Which is definitely as- necessary. <laughs> so I am absolutely not going to list or even attempt to list them all. But astoundingly, this race started with 28 candidates running for the Democratic primary. Isn't that incredible? Well- Twenty-eight I, in the Democratic room. All
0: I can say is, in the UK, we had about I think twelve, <laughs> and that was enough. Like that was, com- and it was 12. just completely embarrassing when they yeah. had to all squeeze on a stage to <laughs> oh do a God. debate, and we couldn't even manage that. Instead,
1: had two debates <laughs> in order to fit twenty qualifying <gasps> candidates on our debate stage. Let me see if I can name some of them, and uh, see how is, fast is can go. Is this a twenty-eight or is no of the-, the twenty-eight? But yeah, I'm not going to get anywhere near naming oh all right, 28. let Let's yeah. see how many I can do. Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, this is in no particular order by the way, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh
0: the English have absolutely a, a lot of difficulty passing a sign. I salary. know.
1: Boot edge edge, like a boot on your foot, edge at the edge of a table. Say Buttigieg. it again. Boot edge, edge. Actually in his campaign office he has a giant poster that says phonetically spelled boot edge edge. I thought that was hilarious. It's probably quite Buttigieg. a good Buttigieg. campaign. I know. That's Honestly, I think about that sign every time I say his last name now. So. Smart campaign, but uh, not smart enough apparently. (laughs) Anyway, before we ruin the ending of this. Okay, so I got Mayor Pete, Cory Booker, um, Tom Steyer, Michael Bloomberg, those of you counting them up to nine. I feel bad for the candidates that I've completely forgotten already. Okay, Tulsi Gabbard. um, I might be capped out at 10. I'm sure there were some great ones there that I completely missed though. And I apologize to them. Anyway, point of the story is that there were a lot of candidates in this race. But after Tuesday, we are narrowed down to three people.
0: So who are these three people, Taryn? Yeah,
1: um, I bet you can guess two of them, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So in many ways, it's a two-man race now. And um, for those of you who are not following this as closely as me and Charlotte, Joe Biden, obviously former vice president to President Obama, uh, he is a moderate centrist candidate is how he's posing himself, whereas Bernie Sanders is of the far left. He brands himself as a democratic socialist, which is a pretty
0: normal title in the UK,
1: but a very controversial one in the US.
0: I would say looking at the UK, personally, I feel that Bernie Sanders would be most aligned to someone like Jeremy Corbyn. It's probably true. Yeah, in terms of their policies. Mm
1: -hmm. And Joe Biden is much more moderate. Um, He's much more, his messaging for this campaign is a lot about inclusiveness, working across the aisle, trying to bring the country together, that kind of thing. Um, so those are the two. So I who's who the third one? Is. Yeah. Third All right, third one still hanging on as of recording. By the way, so this might change before the podcast is even released. But as of recording, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Mayor Pete. No, just kidding. I wish. Tulsi Gabbard, is still who in the is race. Who is that? Good question. She is a congresswoman from Hawaii. She's been in it obviously from the get go. She was on the debate stage ages ago, but has not qualified since November. So there's a lot of questions, just like you just did. Um, What's what's she doing? (laughs) What what is she doing? Who is she?
0: And how is she still hanging on in that? Yeah,
1: so... Like I said, she hasn't qualified for debates, but she's still hitting the campaign trail. She's still making appearances. So this has caused a lot of speculation as to what her end goal is, because obviously she doesn't seem to have a reasonable path forwards to the nomination. She has a total of zero pledged delegates right now. Goodness. So this is interesting. The speculation from you know people like Anderson Cooper from CNN and uh, Andrew Yang. Oh, Andrew Yang. I'm sorry, Andrew Yang. He is another former candidate, dropped out uh, recently. Oh, yeah. forgot about him already, sorry.
0: Something like flies. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, anyway, so there is speculation among them and others that she is trying to qualify for a position on Fox News. And this is a very, very long audition for that.
0: So this is, so she's That's just the doing rumor, the most at least. She indirect. has denied this, I
1: should say, though. She has denied those allegations and said that anyone who says that has not been paying attention to her messaging. I,
0: as a Brit, I'm a little bit confused. Fox mm. News, I would say... Looking at is, is quite a Republican.
1: Absolutely. Very conservative leaning. So absolutely. it seems
0: very, very indirect that this woman is yeah. planning to be a Democrat candidate and then suspiciously yeah. wanting a position in Fox News. It's so look, confusing. So looking at her prior to this, I say palaver, not a palaver, <laughs> primaries, how, how well known was she? Well, she's a
1: congresswoman, right? So she's uh, represents the second district of Hawaii. So she's, you know, made it to Congress. So she's well enough. She's she's also has a military background. So I would say as far as the democratic stage, she probably wasn't known by any Democrats, but she was in Congress, you know, she has political and military experience. So she didn't come out of nowhere, but it's obviously deeply confusing as to why she, when so many wonderful candidates have dropped out that ha- actually had success, actually one delegate and then dropped out. So for her, who hasn't been able to get any pledged delegates in any of the primaries so far to still be hanging on, really begs an explanation.
0: Is there any potential that she can pick up the votes of those that have dropped out so far? Or is she going to be pushed to one side as just, A no
1: It would be hard to say where she would pick this up from because at this point we've got essentially a two-man race between a moderate option and a very left-wing option. Where does she fall in that she can carve out her own following that could lead her forward to the nomination? It's hard to imagine where that political space even is. So we still actually have some primary elections to go and then we'll know the actual nomination in the coming months.
0: How many do we have left?
1: How many primaries? Yeah. Another month of them, at least. We have all of April. There are more primaries.
0: I mean, I guess from now on, at least there's fewer candidates to keep keep following. Yeah. <laughs> a little I mean, easier could... to follow the election now. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much, Charlotte Scar for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Yeah, Thank it's you. been great having you. Uh, tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel, where I'll be going back to uh, another deep dive, uh, just as usual.
0: The headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better